Hello, welcome to the Red and Blue podcast. I'm your host, Aaron, and I'm a member of the UK Conservative Party. Joining me is my friend and co-host from the other side of the political aisle, Josh, who is a member of the UK Labour Party. Political civility is our mission and our cause, and we aim to discuss the week's news with all of that in mind. Now, on with the show. Myanmar, also known as Burma, located in Southeast Asia, received worldwide coverage this Monday due to a military coup that occurred throughout the nation. Aung San Suu Kyi is the leader of the National League for Democracy Party, who won by landslide, but has been forcibly removed and held by the opposition's leader, who still contains control of Myanmar's military. So, Josh, just to give you a little bit of history... Um, about this. So Myanmar was ruled by the armed forces from 1962 to 2011 and the leader of the National League for Democracy Party, Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, she became famous in 1990 for campaigning to restore democracy in Myanmar. She spent nearly 15 years in detention between 1989 and 2010 after organising rallies calling for peaceful democratic reform and free elections and she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize while under house arrest in 1991, and in 2015 led the NLD party to victory in Myanmar's first openly contested election in 25 years. So there's quite a lot to to, to digest there. Yeah, so I guess it, it was going well for the first, uh, since 2015, as well as it probably can then. Um, so... Labour have accused um, Dominic Raab, I suppose I should be more specific, um, Stephen Kinnock, the shadow uh, foreign minister, has accused Raab of not going far enough in the government's response to uh, the coup, um, and suggesting that really we should be putting um, sanctions on the army and their business interests. Uh, Dominic Raab has said that there are sanctions in place on certain individuals, um, but the Labour, Labour Party kind of line is that they don't think that's going far enough. These things are such sensitive subjects. Um, and, you know, I'm not I'm nowhere well versed on complex foreign policy of coups and Britain's uh, what they should be doing uh, within relation to them. Um, it doesn't, it possibly doesn't fill me with great hope uh, that Dominic Raab is our foreign secretary. I know I've said it. At times, I'm not sure we've got the right government for the right times. But when tricky situations like this come up, um, you know, it's really useful to have kind of intellectual heavyweights or those with real strong experience. Uh, I'm not sure Rob uh, ticks either of those boxes particularly well. Um, mm. But I mean, from a political point of view, it's interesting kind of how it plays out because I imagine a large amount of the UK uh, voters and day-to-day have probably only read an article here or there uh, if they're going through the newspaper, but I doubt the vast majority of people even are aware. So it's interesting how little or how much um, news cycle space this takes up in the next days and weeks. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that about Dominic Raab because um, Joe Biden has threatened Myanmar with sanctions or further sanctions, rather, if if things continue. And so the thing about sanctions is, is that they're meant to deter international foul play really so so the whole point of sanctions is to do something like that so that would uh, discourage 
other countries from failing to live up to their democratic promises. And so yeah. what what's interesting is how the West has responded versus the East. So if I just go into into the response from, from China, China has said on the record that he thinks it's an internal matter and needs to be resolved internally and no one else should be getting involved. And so you haven't seen the same response exactly from the US or the UK, although I take your point that the UK's response has probably not been strong enough. I thought it might be a time that China kind of stepped up as they are continuing to try and grow and show international leadership on various things. Um, so I may be slightly surprised that they've uh, left it, but I suppose they also don't want uh, people prime within their domestic affairs too much. Well, I guess my argument would be, would be is that China overall doesn't really respect and value democracy and i would i would argue the individual uh, individual liberty of, of people so i wouldn't mm. I, if they're not going to do it for their own i don't understand why they would then want to uh want the same for others i i think that they um and i'm talking about the chinese government here not you know the chinese people yeah, yeah. um but the, the chinese government i think look upon the west as um not favorably anyway not favorably no there's something about sanctions um i suppose the balance has to be struck really carefully right because if a country does something international foul play to use that term against another country um introducing sanctions to the offending party it does really make you know it does kind of make sense if it works as a deterrent but here the coup's already happened um and Okay, you can put sanctions on individuals. Putin, I don't know how many sanctions are on him personally, but I think if uh, he's got many bank accounts allegedly in many different people's names across the world. So, you know, how, how much does that really impact? And then how much are you impacting the citizens of the country by enforcing economic sanctions? Um, obviously, the UK government has a... Uh, we sell a lot of arms around the world. Whether that makes its way over to um, the Far East, I'm not too sure. But you know, that seems like a would be a logical place to stop as well. Well, I, th- I think that's right, isn't it? I, I think that's one of the the biggest concerns about sanctions is that if if, for example, let's say that the UK and the US decided that they didn't want anything to do with the Chinese trade anymore, let's say they just stopped it, the the biggest concern would be that they would then, uh, the Chinese government would still have money within themselves, but actually it would be the people, the ordinary people who would suffer from those sanctions as opposed to the government, which is where they're actually directing those sanctions to. And so I think that's I think that's the concern when it comes to sanctions. And also I think it, it can also come across as you're sort of moralizing and policing other people who don't necessarily have the exact same values as you. And as much as I think that that is needed from time to time. You know, America has a, a stereotype of policing the world with its yeah. with with it with its own morality, and I, I think that there is some logic needed for that. But at the at the same time, I I think there is a fine line with it. Yeah, I'm totally with you on all of that, um, and I would think that the two obvious times to intervene are in a. Um, in human rights abuses and uh, coups, um, I'd imagine. So this probably does feel like a time where some political strong arming is probably required. Well, if you were to compare the two leaders, so you've got the leader of the um, the leader of the NLD compared to the military leader who sort of ousted her. 
Uh, neither of them are a cakewalk when it comes to policy. It's not like it's Adolf Hitler versus Nelson Mandela or something. It's, you know, you've got the military leader who's, uh, who's awful when it comes to policy, but, um, but the leader herself... Um, has been accused of genocide over the uh, yeah. over the minority Muslim population called the Rohingya. So it's it's not like you know um, either are in the West's terms one is an amazing beacon of freedom and the and the other one isn't. I think it's a case between bad and and less bad. But I think I just think that a lot of people who live in a democracy would sympathise with the people because it's the people who suffer really at the, at the end of the day that they would actually want an actual democracy and for that to be respected with you uh, absolutely some of the atrocities that have happened um which i think largely blind eyes uh again get turned to by uh, at least the average kind of uk citizen um if not governments um but you're right they've elected someone in a i'm making the assumption of a free and fair election and it should be upheld um and military coups, oh, it's tricky, isn't it? I think out of anything, foreign policy is the one that I struggle with more than uh, more than anything else. Because like you say, there's no absolutes and very rarely is there a perfect answer. Well, I think the thing is, is that there's there's awful things going on all over the world, uh, you know, throughout, you know, the Middle East and, and Africa and, and, and Asia and even our own nations. And so the problem is, is that if you were to impose sanctions on people who didn't have the same values as you, you would be imposing sanctions on everyone. And so it's, uh, it's a really, really tricky one to, uh, to get right. And I don't even pretend to be educated enough to have an opinion on all of it because it's just, it's just so, so tricky. Absolutely. But I suppose, and I need, to, I need to know more about it, but if you can specifically target the army without impacting the country too much in sanctions, um, then that would seem like somewhere to go. But I'm sure that wouldn't be without repercussion either. Do you like political civility? It's something that's been on my mind for years. Seeing America at breaking point with Donald Trump as president, the Brexit debate which divided the UK for many years and in some ways still going on now. It seems like there is so much noise out there and we can be under the illusion that the nastiness spouted by others on Twitter has to be the norm in political discourse. One of the ways you can really help Josh and myself out is to subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review wherever you choose to listen. This will really help more people discover the show. We aim, as you know, to bring political civility back to people who want to discuss even the most contentious issues without forgetting about the humanity in the people that they speak to. Thanks for your support. And now, back to the show. Captain Sir Tom Moore died this Tuesday after catching pneumonia and the coronavirus. He was originally known for capturing the hearts across the UK and in further reaches of the world after he pledged originally to raise £1,000 for NHS charities for completing 100 laps of his garden for his 100th birthday. In the end, he raised over £32 million and his death has surprised and saddened many across the nation. As well as being a hero for fighting in the greatest and most important war in modern history, he proved that anyone of any age can make a difference. So, Josh, obviously really sad uh, that this has happened and, and very, well, ironic in a very sad way, seeing as how much he raised. 
So it is really sad. It is. Um, I think any death to coronavirus is incredibly sad. Um, well, any death, you know, it's sad that goes without, kind of goes without saying. But what a legend! What a what a life this uh, what a life he's had, and I think you know, celebrating it is you know whilst it's sad. Um, I think we should we should celebrate it. We should say what a what a hero, what an inspiration, and an icon. Um, and yeah, thank you for kind of what he did, and that you know he helped briefly unite a country that really needed it so we should always be thankful for that there did seem like a moment that there was there was unity across the board politically and people were 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 very sad and i did see unfortunately a few people on twitter trying to trying to politicize the situation which i thought was a real shame because as much as there is always the time for for political chat and to and to disagree and and all those sort of things it just didn't seem the right like the right time to do something like that and um, I didn't see anything on Twitter that was kind of politicising it too much, but I did see, obviously, some of the negativity um, around some of the final months uh, of his life, to which I kind of say, mind your own business. Um, but I get where some I get where some of it comes from, but it's not, you know, it's a different subject completely, but it's not quite like he was uh, an influencer out in Dubai sipping cocktails. He was having what was quite clearly his last uh, last few weeks with his family. But I guess I do understand some of the hypocrisy, but I think for, for what he's achieved, um, I think we should celebrate that instead of focusing on anything else. Well, you did have a leader of um, a leader of the clergy saying yesterday that clapping for Ca- Captain Sir Tom Moore is a is the epitome of whiteness. He says something like that, which I thought was an absolutely reprehensible statement to make. Why? Why? Uh, why do you find it reprehensible? I'm not for it. I'm just uh, curious. I think it's an interesting thing to uh, put apart, isn't it? Well, I guess it's it's the increasing racialization of everything that's happening um, in the Western world. And I think to to look upon a man who's who served his country and and done every everything that he's done, the idea of just looking at the color of his skin and saying that that's the statement of who you are is the color of your skin, and uh, and everything else actually is is irrelevant to that. I think is um, an incredibly well, wrong and racist um, way of, of treating someone. So this is where I get, um, where, I, yeah, I find this really interesting because um, I didn't take that statement as talking about Sir Tom Moore's skin colour. Um, I kind of took it as a uh, whiteness, as a, you know, there are some things that are just incredibly white thing to do. Um, and why this would be one of them, uh, I'm not entirely sure, but... Like I say, it made me chuckle uh, when you telling me that he said it. I don't think he probably should say it, but I don't think it's particularly... Is it particularly racist? So I suppose it's playing on a stereotype. I'm not too sure of what that stereotype is, but I'm sure he was trying to play on a stereotype. But, you know, it's not particularly racist, and I'm taking this a step back here, to say that some things are particularly culturally more one uh, community or another, um, but you know, it, I can't. I kind of see where he's coming from. I think when you try to attach values, like one of the American museums, it labelled hard work as a form of whiteness, and and I and I, I would argue that that's not just offensive to white people. That's insanely offensive to black people. Black people who work who work very hard in this country. Yeah, that's incredible. That's incredibly offensive. I think to. <laughs> To a lot of people, to everyone, actually, that's probably very offensive. Well, yeah, it's and so I, I don't, I don't like, 
I don't like racialization when it when it comes to values. I think that you have to be very careful when you're talking about it. And also, I, I think that a bit of consistency is is what's needed. So if something is racist to say one way, it should be racist to say the other way. And so um, if I were to come out and say coming out on the street and clapping is not a black thing to do, which is what he's basically what he is saying in reverse, um, people would say that's a racist thing to say. And I think that they would be right to say that, but it's not racist when he says it in reverse. And so I think there just needs to be a bit of consistency here when it comes to that kind of conversation. Sure, but I suppose you always have the cultural impact of it first. So racism is always deeper against those who have been repressed um, and always hits harder. But, you know, there are certain things that are that are kind of stereotypically white, and I suppose white becomes a, a term for a bit middle class and stuffy in terms of what it means it here. It's all very bit, you know, hoorah, jolly poly stick hockey sticks um kind of scout leader type thing do you know what i mean yeah i i i, 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 I know what you mean I, I i totally understand that there are some there are some stereotypes i just don't like the hypocrisy when it comes to those stereotypes i i understand that that the people who have been marginalized because of the color of the skin is always going to hit harder and i totally get why that's the case but i don't think it makes it right uh, yeah, so I have a radical idea. Uh, and whilst he raised a phenomenal amount of money, thirty-three million pounds for NHS charities, um, you know, it's another argument. But I'm not sure NHS should really have, be charities in one aspect. But also, the thirty-three million quid is an absolute drop in the ocean to money that the government's wasted on um, failed track and trace and various other initiatives that have been thrown out to um, their government friends, contracts that have been unfulfilled for PPE and various amounts of things. So I don't want to absolutely, I never want to diminish uh, anyone raising money for charity. And he's done honestly a fantastic job and inspired many others to do so. But, and this is where part of the politicization comes, where Johnson and co are happy to get behind him because it kind of takes the heat off asking the real questions, which is actually we've had 10 years of a severely underfunded NHS um, and cronyism rife throughout government contracts awarded where 33 million is, uh, unfortunately, a drop in the ocean. I think that's a very, very good point. I, I think that the, the note that you're hitting on is the fact that why do NHS have charities? Why is the NHS not just fully funded? That's probably what you're hitting on, right? Yeah, and, and I don't know the history of that. You know, there might be some NHS... I get that to a limit, there's probably the government say this is fully funded and they'd have a brass neck saying it for the last 10 years, I think. But, you know, um, counterfactuals, imaginary world, you say, right, we pay for X amount of surgeries, but we don't pay for certain cosmetic surgeries or certain surgeries that we don't think, you know, and there to be a charity that kind of supports that. I kind of get that, which largely, you know, th- those things exist. But actually, yeah, the crux of it is um, the NHS has obviously been drastically underfunded for a long time yeah well i i guess it sort of depends what it is doesn't it what, what you were just saying there is this sort of thing i mean if you've suffered a horrendous burn i'm the nhs of what is government funded should be 100 percent covering that but then there's the whole thing of like oh i want plumper lips or or a boob job or whatever i would say eh, go to the private sector we're not funding that so, <laughs> you know there's a distinction rest assured aaron your lips are uh Perfectly plump, but um, well, I was trying to get my tits done, but yeah, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
<laughs> we can have a whip round, maybe. Yeah, but, um, yeah, that's going to be quite a whip round. They are not cheap unless you go to, um, you know, Magaluf or whatever. You can get them done for about a third of the price. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly that. But um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think I think the question is just down to down to where does where does the money go and uh, i think that's a perfectly perfectly fair question and i'm not gonna by any means defend the government and say that they've uh, spent every penny wisely because i'm sure that's not the case i I realistically i wouldn't expect them to spend every penny wisely um because i get that you're going to have inefficiencies you're going to have waste and there is going to be some money um that goes where it shouldn't in use you might start a project and think well actually that's not you know that's not actually where we should be. We need to turn turn the ship, but I think too often, too consistently, money's been chucked in places that you wouldn't expect it to, to people that you wouldn't expect it to. Yet when they've been pulling back on other things. So what does civility mean? The dictionary definition says formal politeness and courtesy in behaviour and speech. What I've realised about political anger is that it's actually a temptation. Sometimes we have to thumb past tweets that we want to respond to, but realise that if we did we'd only add fuel to the fire. And what about our friends, families? We all know someone who's got opposing views to us. The question is how do you treat them? Make the world a better place by talking about politics in a manner that is civil, kind and brings out the best in others. If you have any stories, drop us a tweet at the Red Blue Pod. Now, back to the show. The EU scheme set up in June 2020 allows the EU to negotiate the purchase of vaccines on behalf of its member states. It says that it can help reduce costs and avoid competition between the countries within the EU. Controversy arose when the EU tried to force the government's hand to hand over some of its stock of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Yeah, so I think initially, the I think the idea sounds is logical. Um, we all know that if you purchase something in bulk and centralization, you can usually control costs, you can control distribution. That said, sometimes decentralization kind of stuff can work. Um, but this, you know, it's not been great, the uh, EU um, vaccine program. Um, it was kind of a little bit behind us. And I think that's caused some of the... AstraZeneca problems. I know the CEO was saying because there was some negotiating over contracts that put them uh, a couple of months behind. Um, but it's yeah, it's getting there, but slowly. And their triggering of Article Sixteen or whatever it was was a huge misstep for the EU uh, and quickly remediated, I think. But this does come from an environment. Um, that's been caused by Brexit, where both parties, as in UK, EU, 
don't fully trust each other anymore. The relationship's been dented. Um, and then add that into the heat of what's going on. I think that makes... Um, I think th this is not going to be the first, nor the last. Oh, sorry, it was might be the first, but it's not going to be the last of uh, things like this from either side, I imagine. Just to give the audience a bit of a background when it comes to our Brexit positions, because I know that we oppose on this, which is why I was so interested in talking to you about it. Um, I so I voted to remain in the in the referendum, but ever since the referendum uh, results showed that the people voted for Brexit, ever since then I've been very not necessarily pro Brexit, but I I've believed that Brexit should one hundred percent happen. Josh, just remind everyone what your stance is on Brexit. Uh, in a word, disaster. Um... In a couple of more words, a complete disaster. But, you know, I I get this whole respect the will of the people and all that nonsense. Um, and I say it nonsense because it's not necessarily uh, the will of the people and it's actually quite populist um, to go down that. But that's for a different, probably for a different time. Um, you know, I kind of thought there should have been options to reconsider um Brexit or, or the path of what we wanted to do. And I always thought a hard Brexit like this that we've got um, would be a disaster. And thus far, it's proven not to be a sunlit uplands that we promised. So so when it comes to this, when it comes to the vaccination programme, I guess I would, I'm not going to be one of these smug people who would, you know, agrees with Brexit now and saying that, well, the EU's revealed its colours. I, I do think in some degree that that is true. But I don't. I I would argue from from the Brexit side that there have been many signs before then that the EU is not something that I I believe that the UK should be aligned with now. I've never. I don't. And I think hard push to find uh, argument remainers say that the EU is a perfect institution. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, yeah. You know, and for sure they make missteps um, and they get things wrong because, well, largely because they're fallible and human, uh, largely because. It's really complex and largely because they probably overreach at times. Um, and there's loads of reform that I think could happen. Um, however, I just feel that there's been people like Dan Hannan, um, who I'm not a particular fan of, uh, gloating. And I just don't feel this is the kind of right time to gloat. If you know, The whole idea is we're always going to be, once we've Brexited, a friend to these European nations. Um, and it's still a time to kind of remain that, remain ironically, but still be friends and, you know, gloating. I don't think it's going to get anyone anywhere. So I think it's good from you from that. Well, I, I agree with the gloating part. I mean, it doesn't help anything. What's the point? Mm. Um, so, and I've definitely seen a lot of that from from the Brexiteers this week on the, on Twitter for sure. And I don't like it when it's on the right. I don't like it when it's on the left. I don't care where it comes from. I just I just think it's kind of ugly, really. Yeah, so, it's not helpful, is it? No, no, well, it doesn't. It doesn't help facilitate good political discourse. I would argue so, and I'm sure you would argue as well. Yeah. I, I, I think that the the way that I see this is when the EU was formed. I don't think that it was unreasonable the way that it was formed. It was just formed to be a trading block, and I don't, there's there's nothing. I don't think that's bad at all. I, I think that's a good thing. What 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 I've been concerned with, it's it's increasing want for power and to control and I, I think that so from someone who would say that for the most part I'm on the right a lot of people on the right have a great degree of concern when it comes to big power whether it's big government power you know big federal power uh, and, and I think that that's why 
um, someone like me is concerned about the EU, not just for the whole, like, it's, for me, it's, it's nothing really to do with immigration. It, it's mainly to do with the fact that when I vote for the Prime Minister, I want them to fully govern, and I don't want to be dictated to by bureaucrats in Brussels. And so that that's always been my argument when it comes to Brexit. And, and I think that when people make this just all about immigration, I think that I, I think that that well, I think that's wrong, and I, and I think it does a disservice to the to the to what I would argue to be the greater argument of of government power. No, for, okay, sure. Um, I think there's you know that, that aside, uh, and it probably was immigration what won it, but you know that aside, um, there is a bit of an, some misconception on how these laws are formed, and you know I won't go into too much detail, but largely, you know. You, you give a bit of sovereignty, but you get a lot kind of back in return. And I think, you know, whilst this EU vaccination program is pretty, has gone pretty poor, um, you know, counterfactuals aside, you know, had we remained, there was no, no way of knowing, but, you know, it might not necessarily have gone so poor, or we might not necessarily have had to have been tied to it. You know, I'm sure there's, again, times where we can go do our own thing, but this, controversy this week has only come because of Brexit. It's been a week of interesting Brexit stuff um, that, again, playing the new cycle and, the sp- and some of the spin games, that this argument has probably come at the perfect time for government because they can say, well, or their mouthpieces in, in the press can say, um, ah, look, told you that the EU wasn't very good. But what's kind of covering up from the debacle that is uh, shellfish? So Brexit has always been so long, and thanks for the fish. But um, as, we've seen, as we've seen this week, the fishing industry has taken another huge blow as um, EU is keeping to the rules. Shock horror! It's one thing that they are incredibly good at is keeping to the agreed rules. That um, UK shellfish uh, can't be sold into the UK for various restrictions, uh, which majority of businesses aren't set up for. So the fishing industry that was kind of brought along on this has been sold up the river. Um, again, I think this is the second or third big thing that's going to hit jobs and hit these coastal towns massively, unless the government come in and subsidise. But then how long do you subsidise for? And what's the long-term damage? Is any of it um, irreversible? Yeah, so so, so why, would, why would we curtail everything uh, that we're trying to do and, and match it to, to what the EU wants? I guess that that's what would be... My, my take on it. Why does it always have to be us trying to get to the EU's values? Largely because it's your neighbour on the doorstep that wants to buy from you. So it's kind of like, this is really simplifying, um, so sorry, but it's almost literally like your neighbour wanting to buy something off you, um, but saying, oh, I will buy, shed loads of it, but do you mind just putting it in an envelope first, or actually do you mind wrapping your bit of fish in some cling film? So, uh, I'd, you, you'd kind of go, yeah, all right. But when you were living in your neighbor's house, you could give them the fish just easy and it's all fine because you're in the same house. But next door, there are slightly different rules and that's not a great analogy. But with this, we want to sell, we sell our, our shellfish to the EU, who's the largest buyer of our shellfish. You know, it doesn't really go much other places. It's not particularly eaten within Britain. But I, um, I guess, I mean, it's an interesting um, analogy or metaphor, but I, I guess if I was to, to take that to a, to a silly extreme, yeah. I, would, I would say, well, um, I'm, I'm going to sell to you, uh, Mr. or Mrs. Neighbour, um, but I want to live in my own house, and if you won't buy from me, then I'm going to go to the next neighbour. 
Yeah, but who is that next neighbour when your next neighbour's in, uh, you've got to get in your car. So for every bit of travel, uh, price becomes more expensive. Um, and you've got, essentially, it costs go up. The delays on trying to move fresh fish as well. But it's, um, it, but it's like the EU is, is, is the, so if you live on, if you live on Main Street and you're number one and there's a hundred houses on there, it's like there's some kind of big ruler who's who's over the other 99 houses and saying, no, you can only go through us. And my argument is with those kind of specific things, maybe just go direct to the neighbour. Surely there's something that can be done there. So I don't think that will be able to happen. I, I get where you're going with that analogy. Um, but I do, you know, one thing, another thing that you are very good at is um pooling that kind of sovereignty and nations staying strong so especially um france portugal spain where a lot of our shellfish goes but they can actually um tell us yeah it wouldn't i don't think we'll be able to pick them off individually uh, because they won't be able to accept and i mean this in the terms of uh rules as opposed to the quality but the substandard product or product that's not meat the requirements they won't be able to accept it in um but then you know it comes a time where they actually go ah we'll just let's just flip this and we'll just start importing more from norway and uh upper europe um which will then really kibosh our uh fishermen because it's yeah it's not a case of then we trying to sell to other people but actually it's like your neighbor saying actually don't worry aaron i'm gonna get the fish from uh i'm gonna get the fish from next door because he does what I, he kind of gives it to me how I want as a customer. I'd say, well, okay, I'll, I'll go to the next street and, and sell to them. And I'll, uh, well, I mean, good luck selling shellfish to Northern Africa in its large <laughs> quantities, I suppose. Or I'm not sure geography, okay. geographically. I know. I, 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 I take your point. I, I think I yeah. just, I, I think I just, I, I see the EU as, as being, a, a tad dictatorial when it when it comes to these sort of things, and I think that's what a lot of Brexiteers in particular are are wary of, and they don't want to be dictated to by by their rules, and they want things. To and be- that's and that is fine. You can just you can take your business elsewhere, I suppose. You know, the it, the free market enables you to do so, but with that then comes um, obviously extra costs and other things, and you have to we have to remember that we could have Brexited and stayed inside the single market and the customs union, which would have not screwed over our fishermen. Um, but we chose this path somehow. But a lot of people would argue that that's not really Brexit, though, is it? Quite possibly. But, you know, it's exactly so you can have your fish and eat it, I suppose. <laughs> Literally, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I totally take your point. I, I think that it's just a lot of people, if we're going back to the uh, the neighbour street analogy, which you which you coined, which I thought was rather good. <laughs> I, I think I think I think that a lot of a lot of people who wanted Brexit are challenging that that person who's dictating to all the other neighbours what they can and can't do. I think a lot of people are just saying, Well, hang on a minute, who are you to decide this? Why can't I go direct to them? Why well I think that and I, and in some way, I think I, I sympathise with those sort of views because I, I think that a lot of people just want Britain to be able to to just cause its own but, destiny. And and we are, and it's not going great. But you you know you have to remember that these people within inside the EU people countries um, have they're agreed they're signed up to to what it is because actually largely it benefits. 
it is of benefit to these countries. So why would they look to change something because Britain has umbrage with it? They're saying, you know, they're interlocked. They go, well, actually, our position's pretty clear. Uh, regardless of the EU, you know, you look at certain countries, they go, well, actually, yeah, we, we're pretty happy with that. We don't want to risk it or we don't want to de- cause detriment for this just because of uh, you want to flog us some, uh, some stuff. Some, uh, no, I know. It's just that the EU might not be fine with it, but it's possible that France is or Belgium is or Spain is. There's room to negotiate around the edges. You know, they see the benefits of being this strong unit together and now we're on the outside of the garden trying to throw our fish over the wall um, to continue to build out that metaphor which actually you know somehow it was agreed that there'll be a, a border in the Irish Sea for goods so there's now spot checks that go on there and that's not I mean that wasn't in the Brexit manifesto if ever one existed but I mean the problems that's going to cause I mean, horribly this week we've seen threatening behaviour come to um officials that have been doing those checks but you know that's another it's another thing that's going to rear its head in the next days weeks months and years um where you might who knows where it might lead but fingers crossed all fingers crossed that it doesn't lead to uh any trouble yeah it's, it's another kettle of fish which is what you probably should have said <laughs> yeah oh, damn it i missed out yeah You're missing out on the puns yeah yeah, maybe edit that in. <laughs> yeah, just you, just you, just you saying it instead of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think people would suspect a thing. <laughs> and you know, you know what would be really interesting um, because I'm sure listeners have might think what I say is load of bollocks, and I'd love to, you know, genuinely love to hear it. Um, so if anyone does, or if they, if people have what they think might be an answer, it'd be really interesting to hear some of that as well. Bring political civility back by joining us every Friday on the Red and Blue podcast. You can also find us on Twitter at the Red Blue Pod, where both Josh and I, Aaron, will be tweeting our thoughts throughout the week. <laughs>